This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Last week's shooting at STEM School Highlands Ranch was the second time in less than a month students took it upon themselves to stop a shooter. 18-year-old Kendrick Castillo died after confronting one of the attackers at STEM. The week prior, 21-year-old Riley Howell lost his life at the University of North Carolina when he tackled a shooter. These students sacrificed themselves to save others. And it's one more layer in the complex discussion around school shootings. To help us navigate this, we reached out to the National Association of School Psychologists. It's in Bethesda, Maryland. And spokeswoman Kathy Cowan says kids are carrying an unreasonable burden. They're the ones in the classrooms along with their teachers who are dying. And I think kids... You know, I can't speak for all students across the country, but I think they kind of feel like the adult world is failing them. And if the adults aren't going to do it, I guess they have to. And that is something we need to seriously contend with in this country. Because she says it comes with inherent risks. Cowan wants to be clear. She's in no way minimizing these students' bravery, nor are we. But she's concerned that focusing too much on confronting a shooter could have unintended consequences. When we celebrate them as heroes, which is maybe an important thing to do for the people involved, there is a risk that we give the impression to kids across the country that being a hero is sort of required or is a goal of response in the event of a school shooting. So Cowan suggests careful conversation around this topic. It's tempering our language to honor the the individual, but this is not an ultimate strategy for keeping schools safe. I think across the board, headlines like, Hero Students Saves Lives, Hero Students Stops Shooter. And it puts the, the nature of what that young person did almost in the context of either an adult military operation or sort of a superhero context. We need to be careful that we don't put our children into the mindset that they have to do that in order to effectively respond. And Cowan adds that the culture children grow up in today might also play a role in their decision to intervene. Generally, children are impressionable and can be impulsive just by their developmental nature. That's just a fact. And all kids want to be heroes in their, from the time they're little. They want their parents to be proud of them. They want their peers to admire them. These are all natural and important mindsets of kids. And with that balanced against sort of the media culture where superheroes are the talk of the day, where there are video games, where heroes die and come back, this is the context within which kids are absorbing this idea that student heroes are saving the day. And it doesn't mean that some students naturally are instinctively going to respond in this manner. But if students don't respond in this manner, it doesn't mean that they failed. And we don't want kids who are acting impulsively doing something they might might not need to do because they think they're supposed to. That is Kathy Cowan of the National Association of School Psychologists. And what she said there is a lot to take in. Maybe it raises more questions for you. We'd love to know what you think as a parent, educator, student. Email us your thoughts on the subject, news at CPR.org. Again, the email address, news at CPR.org. 
So Colorado has a school safety resource center, a kind of clearinghouse for good information, and its director, Chris Harms, joins us. I wonder if you'd reflect on what we just heard there. Well, I would agree with Ms. Cowan that it is a, a frightening thought that our students may feel the need to confront an active shooter. Um, I don't know the specific circumstances in either case as to whether or not there was another alternative than um, addressing the shooter directly, but we would really hope that students would not feel the need to do that and therefore not feel guilty if they don't confront a shooter. I'll note that Douglas County, where the Stem Highlands Ranch School is located, teaches a protocol of lock lights out of sight. That is, lock the door, turn off the lights, and hide. Uh, What can you say about whether any kids in Colorado are taught in school to fight back? I don't believe any students in Colorado are taught that. I do know that some of the adults have been taught the run-hide-fight situation, but I don't necessarily think that this is something that we have used with students. With students, okay. Uh, I spoke with a STEM student last week who thinks he and his classmates were well-trained. They knew what to do because of the drills. Part of that training is that students evacuate with their hands up so that police know they're not armed. There was a very striking image of small elementary school kids standing in a line with their hands on their heads. Is that a good thing? Well, that was rather heartbreaking to see those young children with their hands on their heads. Um, Obviously, it was part of the protocol of that particular school. I'm not sure that it was necessary with elementary age students who don't carry guns. um, But it didn't look to me like the students felt that upset as they were doing it and just were doing what they were told to do and what they had been trained to do. This is their normal. Unfortunately, it is their normal. What do you say to teachers who confront the reality of these drills and the possibility of these shootings time and again? It's really a scary spot to be in for our teachers. Uh, They get into teaching because they care about kids, and so they want to protect the children that are in their care. Um, It's a very hard thing to think about. I think most people probably still go with a lot of denial that it's not going to happen here. And we know all too well here in Colorado that it has happened in many different situations here. When you say that you think there are people in denial, do you mean teachers or do you you mean? I do mean teachers. Uh, We've done some focus groups with students and the students tell us that they feel that they take the drills more seriously in some cases than some of their teachers. And that's upsetting to us to hear that because we do want the adults to be totally in charge. And we think that them being in charge and knowing what to do is reassuring to the students. What do you make of that? The teachers might be taking this less seriously than their kids. Again, I think it's the denial piece that they, that they really seriously hope it never happens in their circumstances. Chris Harms, you work in the area of threat assessments teaching people in schools to identify students they think might pose a risk to themselves or others, then figuring out how serious that problem might be. Uh, In this case, the district received a letter from a parent last year warning in general terms about the atmosphere at the school and mentioning the possibility of an attack similar to Columbine. No names were mentioned. Uh, The sheriff said the day of the shooting that neither of the suspects had been on the district's radar. 
uh, obviously many more details to emerge. But as an expert in school safety, what seems to have worked well in the response to this shooting? Well, obviously, the first responders got there very quickly. Two minutes is is amazing response. And the fact that um, since Columbine, first responders no longer uh, set up a protective perimeter. Instead, they go right in and they address the shooters. So I think lives were probably saved last Tuesday because of the quick action of the emergency responders. And that was partly because there was a police substation so close uh, of course, some schools have school resource officers. Some schools hire private firms. That varies from school to school. How uniform is that kind of layer of protection? It is. It does vary from school to school. We're a local control state, and oftentimes it depends on the resources not only of the school district, but the community around the district, because in many cases, the SRO may be paid by the uh, community, it may be paid by the school district, or it may be a combination of the two. Do you uh, wish there were more uniformity there? Um, it would be lovely to know that every school has an SRO in their building, and an SRO is often very different than a, a security person because they're trained specifically to work with students. And oftentimes then they get information about a possible um, student who is at risk before someone else might because of the relationships that they build with the students. Is what I hear you saying that a district's and a community's wealth means may influence the kind of law enforcement response in that district? That's often true, yes. On Wednesday night, there is a vigil for the STEM community, and uh, for a variety of reasons, some STEM students got upset and walked out. As they walked back in, they were chanting. Mental health has been raised often throughout the years. What needs to be done to make sure there are adequate services for kids? Well, that's where the threat assessment process comes into play, where we have trained teams who use a protocol to um, look at a student and assess the situation of someone who may be at risk of not only hurting themselves but hurting others. And oftentimes... um, or all the time, resources are put in place, but oftentimes those resources may need to be mental health supports for that student. And our schools are not in a position to do any therapy for students. They very often have to refer to community mental health centers. And so we are short of resources both in the schools for those initial mental health professionals as well as... Do you mean well the as, counselors, a shortage yes, of counselors? counselors, social workers, psychologists. And we are also short of mental health providers in our community mental health services. So So the school does something of a profile of a child who might be a threat to themselves or others, uh, decides what interventions might be necessary, but they don't always have the means uh, to put... To address them in school. To address them in school. That's correct. Yes. It has been reported without official confirmation, I should say, that the suspects may have stolen their guns from a parent. Uh, Our own Andrea Dukakis has found in her reporting that this is often how school shooters get their weapons from parents, from family. Are there steps Colorado could take to prevent that? Education, stricter laws? 
I think the education piece is very important. Parents need to be aware of the fact that if they have a student who's at risk of hurting themselves or others, then they need to make sure that their guns are locked. Very often, uh, schools who who may address a student who is at risk and talk to the parents, the parents sometimes are reluctant or the parents don't believe that the student knows how to get access to those weapons when often the students do. So where should that education occur? I mean, can you envision a teacher standing in front of a class saying, have this conversation with your parents or on a parent's night saying, hey, what about guns in the home? Well, oftentimes when there's a threat assessment done, then the threat assessment team will talk to the parents about the risk involved with having access to those weapons. Ah, that's part of that profile. It is part of that process. And hopefully those parents will take that seriously and either make sure that they're secured or even give the guns to someone else until their student is out of danger. Uh, Chris Harms of the School Safety Resource Center, you must get this question 10 times a day, uh, but I think it's an important one to answer. We, we heard from a listener named Judy Venable uh, through our Colorado Wonders Project, and she writes, quoting here, why couldn't we put metal detectors in every Colorado school? Everyone should go through a metal detector and have bags inspected at school. Uh, reflect on that for us. Well, first of all, that would make our schools more like prisons rather than schools. And I think that's one thing that we would like to avoid. And the other truth of the matter is that there have been situations where there have been schools that have metal detectors and students have still found ways to get guns into schools. So I don't think that's the panacea that's going to solve this problem. Is there much research on this topic? There is. There has been quite a bit of research on this topic. And it does not bear out that metal detectors are... That's correct. The answer. It does not bear out. I'd rather see us spend that money on more mental health providers and, and other prevention programs that could be put in schools because we want our schools to feel like positive, safe places. What do you say, before we go, to parents who think school's not a safe place for my kid? School is still one of the safest places that our children spend time, and I can understand parents being... Um, anxious at this point because of the things that have happened, but um, they are one of the safest places. And one of the best things that we can do is to make sure every classroom in our schools has a lock that works because we have not lost any student that I know of in the United States when they have been in lockdown behind a locked door. Is that not true for some schools? Yes, that is not true for some schools. that They don't have um, easily lockable doors on their classrooms. Uh, Great information. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. I'm sorry it's under these circumstances. I am as well. Chris Harms directs the Colorado School Safety Resource Center. It's actually part of the State Department of Public Safety. There will be a celebration of life on Wednesday for 18-year-old Kendra Castillo, who was killed at STEM School Highlands Ranch. It takes place at 1 in the afternoon at Cherry Hills Community Church. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The Irish ambassador to the U.S., Dan Mulhall, makes his first official visit to Denver this week. Mulhall will visit Leadville, where his government is erecting a memorial to Irish miners who died there in the 19th century. And, Ambassador, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's uh, good to talk to you. Are you in Leadville as we speak? Yes, I'm actually speaking from the highest town in America and from the highest mayor's office. Uh, Mayor Lobby has been very 
kind to offer me the use of his office uh, for this interview. So yes, I'm actually looking out at the the main street of uh, Leadville as we speak. You are at some 10,000 feet. I looked up the highest elevation in <laughs> Ireland, 3,400 feet, Karen uh, Hill. I've never been up there, so uh, I'm I've probably never been higher than about 1,500 feet in Ireland. So uh, yes, okay. this is quite, a, quite an experience, all right. But I did visit Denver in the 1970s when I was a... Uh, when I was a student, I spent some time for the summer in Kansas City and came out here uh, for about a week and drove around um, the uh, sites of uh, of Colorado. But I don't think I was I was in Leadville on that occasion, but it's a pleasure to be here today. You have also visited Salt Lake City on this most recent trip where you commemorated right. the 10,000 Irish workers yeah. who helped build the Transcontinental Railroad. Yes. So this very Astonishing much... feat, really. Yes, indeed. And one that really was an economic boost to this country. Uh, this seems like a celebration of the Irish in the West, your your trip. Yeah, Why yes, now? Yes, you know, you know um, we in Ireland, when we think about Irish America, we typically think about New York, Boston, and Chicago, places where there is a very large historic Irish presence and a very vibrant presence of the Irish Americans uh, to this day. But what I've been trying to do in my year and a half here as ambassador is to to highlight the fact that, in fact, there is an Irish community everywhere in this great country, and that is certainly includes the western part of the United States. So on Friday, I was at the celebration for the um, 150th anniversary of the Golden Spike, and uh, I made the point that that was the most – that was the biggest achievement – Irish achievement of the 19th century that most people in Ireland had not heard of before last week. And I was very happy to publicize that fact in Ireland because I felt it was something that people in Ireland ought to be aware of, that 10,000 people whose names have been lost to history by and large built that uh, epic railroad. And then, let, course, let me just say that the Golden age. Spike was, was that sort of ceremonial final spike driven That's into correct. the Transcontinental Railroad. Yes, and the, the um, Union Pacific, which came from Omaha, Nebraska, um, met the um, Central Pacific Railroad, which came from Sacramento, and they met at, at a place called Promontory Point, and the Golden Spike was driven in. Now, the Irish were mainly involved. There were 10,000 Irish on the um, Union Pacific coming from Omaha, Nebraska, and there were 2,000 Irish um, coming from Sacramento. The, the main uh, workforce there was Chinese, but there were 2,000 Irish among those as well. So 12,000 in all actually contributed to that epic effort to connect uh, East and West in the United States. So at one point in the 1800s, the Irish were the second largest foreign-born ethnic group in Colorado, and Leadville had the most Irish in the region, many of them mined for silver. Uh, I mentioned that you're in Leadville for a memorial that is planned uh, for fallen miners. The Irish government has donated money for this. A CU Denver professor, Jim Walsh, spent more than a decade researching Leadville's Irish immigrant community. Yeah, that's right. He's actually one uh, who discovered there are nearly 2,000 unmarked graves there, most of them for Irish miners and their families. Yeah. Yeah, I I think this all reflects um, the fact that uh, we in Ireland maybe uh, in the past took for granted our links with the Irish diaspora, in particular in the United States, which have been very very valuable to Ireland. Because remember, in the 19th century and into the 20th century, you had um, uh, every Irish political cause and cultural cause received huge support from the Irish in America. And in fact, um, 
I, I know from history that uh, Michael Davitt, who was a great Irish 19th century politician and land reformer, actually came to Leadville in the 1880s. Such was the, the significance of the Irish community in this part of the United States. And of course, those kind of communities, not just in Leadville, but all over the U.S., were very generous in their support of Irish causes. And, and, but we tended to take them a bit for granted. I think in the last maybe 20 years, we've started to realize that we have to make more of an effort on our part. And that's why we're now reaching out, not just here, but elsewhere in the United States as well, to try to connect with the history of the Irish community in the United States. And that's why our government has decided to, uh, to uh, donate or to make available $40,000 um, towards the erection of this memorial, because we feel it's appropriate that the Irish presence here should be marked, because, um, you know, um, that will never happen again. I mean, this, this is all part of a great exodus from Ireland between 1840 and 1900. Six million Irish people left and crossed the Atlantic to North America, and uh, the Irish in America today are essentially descended from, from those people who came here in, in conditions of great difficulty and then had to find a living for themselves, building the railroad and then working in the mines here in Bedville, where conditions in the 19th century were not very um, favorable or very, uh, very um, easy to, to manage. And that's why many of the miners died at a very young age. And in fact, Professor Walsh has shown that the average age of those buried in the um, graveyard here, the Evergreen Cemetery in Leadville was 23, so that you can see how, how short life could be in that part of in this part of the United States at that time. We have just about a minute, Ambassador. Tomorrow you'll speak yes. uh, during Denver's World Trade Day. Correct, Ire- yes. Ireland is the ninth largest global investor in the U.S. economy. Correct. I wonder if yes. you could speak uh, just in the last few seconds specifically to the Irish-Colorado relationship today. Well, I mean, Colorado is also a major source of investment into the United States. The global facts are that there are 750 uh, U.S. companies with investments in Ireland where they operate their European operations and access the European single market, which is a big advantage to them. But there are now 500 Irish companies with investments in the United States, and those companies, some of whom are, are uh, located in uh, Colorado, uh, employ between them 100,000 people. And uh, I'm here really to, to talk up this contemporary relationship, which is built on on uh, the historical links that I'll be celebrating here today. But tomorrow I'll be focusing on the Irish economic link with the United States, but in particular, the link we have with Colorado, which is growing all the time as Colorado becomes more and more uh, an economic dynamo in this part of the United States. Thank you for being with us. You're very welcome. Dan Mulhall, Irish ambassador to the U.S. He joined us by phone from Leadville, where his country is erecting a memorial to Irish mine workers. The air we breathe in Colorado is getting worse. That's according to a recent report from the American Lung Association. So we asked for your questions about air pollution in the state. We had some of our own as well. And for answers, Gabrielle Fista is with us from the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder. Gabrielle, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me. There are different types of air pollution. Uh, Colorado's is mostly an ozone problem. Denver ranks as the 12th worst city in the country. It climbed two spots from the last report and not in the, not in a good direction. Fort Collins is also on the list. 
Can you explain just in layman's terms what ozone pollution is? Yeah, happy to. So ozone pollution is not, it's a pollution that's not directly emitted from sources, but it is created in the atmosphere. So what you need in order to create ozone is you need nitrogen oxides, which are emitted by cars, industries, uh, lots of sources out there that mostly are human caused. And you need volatile organic compounds. And these are also a lot of human sources, industries, oil and gas refineries, as well as there is some biogenic sources. So plants, for example, also can emit volatile organic compounds. So you put these nitrogen oxides and volatile organic compounds in the atmosphere, and they start in the presence of sunshine to react with each other and create ozone. So that's why ozone is typically a daytime problem and the problem specifically when we have the most sunshine present, and that is summertime. Okay, so this is sort of an awful recipe. It's a soup that's being made, and uh, we are uh, presumably then headed into a period where that ozone soup is going to get worse. What You, you identified some of the causes of ozone pollution. Uh, let's just be a little more clear on the kind of rank of those? What's at the top of the list? What's, say, two or three? Well, here in Colorado specifically, what we identified in some of our research as the most uh, contributing local sources is transportation, which means all of us driving around as well as trucks driving around, and oil and gas industry. So these two we identified as the largest local contributors to ozone pollution in the front range. In addition, we also get transport from outside of Colorado to the front range. But this is something what we call, that's what you cannot control. So what's coming from the outside into our state is beyond our control. But what we produce here, which is quite a significant amount, this is within our control. Okay, well, this helps answer the question we got from Kenny, uh, Kelly, pardon me, Kelly Shanafelt of Boulder. Uh, She wants a discussion of how fracking relates to air quality. Colorado, of course, has made a lot of progress capturing fugitive emissions, but there's room for improvement. So how exactly does... Uh, oil and gas drilling, how does that contribute? Uh, So oil and gas drilling specifically, there is a lot of emissions of volatile organic compounds, which are very reactive species in regard to ozone production. And they come from various stages of the oil and gas processes, and they also come from leaks. In addition, there is actually, which we sometimes also ignore, quite an amount of nitrogen oxides coming out from the oil and gas industry. In addition, if you are not sure if you've ever been to the northeastern front range, there's a lot of truck traffic out there Mm. simply to transport the oil and gas around the area. So it is one of the, as I said, it is one of the major contributors to pollution in the front range, in addition to the transportation sector. Now, the topography of the front range, I understand, plays into the problem. Uh, There's something about having the plains meet the mountains here, I gather? Yes, topography and weather. So what draws all of us really to the front range is the blue sky and the beautiful weather that we have most of the time. Maybe not last week, but most of the time. (laughs) Um, And that is exactly what I mentioned earlier. If you want to create ozone, you need sunshine and you need 
higher temperatures. The higher the temperatures, the more sunshine, the more ozone you create. So we have all these ingredients here. In addition, you are correct, um, the topography plays also a role. And so specifically during summertime, when we have high ozone days, we have upslope flows developing during the day. So typically we have low winds and we have the start early morning to mid morning, you start developing upslope flows that slowly bring air from the front range up into the mountains to the west. Oh. So you start in the morning, you start emitting all these nitrogen oxides and volatile organic compounds in the front range. From our commutes, for instance. Yes, and from you name it out there. Um, you start, the sun comes up, you start cooking that, start slowly producing ozone. At the same time, you start the winds moving this pollution up into the mountains. The oh. pollution keeps cooking, keeps cooking. So you cook your ozone in the front range, you keep producing it while you transport it into mountains. So you are not only ending up with having high ozone pollution here in the front range, but later in the day, specifically late afternoon towards the evening, you also start having this high ozone pollution up in the mountains. Okay, so well, you're, you're just, bringing the cooking metaphor even further, the recipe here. Of course, exactly. A along with ozone, there's, there's particle pollution. Um, and this study from the American Lung Association found fewer days when that got particularly bad in Metro Denver. What do we, what do we mean when we're talking about particles in the air we breathe? I mean, I think of stuff from wildfires as pretty obvious. But what else? What are, what are particles? Right. There is actually a lot of industry sources also emit particles by burning processes, fossil fuel burning. But this is actually, we have been pretty successful in the U.S. to clean up a lot of the sources. Hmm. But there is a lot of other natural sources or not necessarily natural. If you think specifically at the end of winter time when you have a lot of sand and dust on the road, all that gets put into the air as well. Or you can have dust storms. But here in the front range, a lot is definitely wildfires. And I know you referred to one day, I think it was in February or January, when uh, there was an all over the news that Colorado has extremely high particle pollution, higher than Beijing or something like that. Yes, there was a comparison to Beijing. We, we actually got a question about that from Rachel West of Denver, because she and her husband moved here from Beijing a few years ago, and she writes... The mountains and clean air of Colorado were appealing. And then this past March, I saw that headline, in this case from Streets Blog Denver, fossil fuels choke Denver with air quality three times worse than Beijing. She says, Rachel, I couldn't fathom Denver's air quality index exceeding Beijing's. How could that be? What's the answer? The answer is that that was fortunately a very, very rare event. And it happened. It was, you know, it's a cold day. It was winter time. You have, in addition to all the regular sources, like people driving and industries, also people were heating their homes. You had wood stoves burning. And we had an extremely strong inversion layer. So all of the pollution that we created didn't go anywhere. It just was sitting there. And, you know, we were all exposed to it. So fortunately, it's a very rare event, but it's just also a very demonstrating event because it just tells you how much local pollution we have here. And that sometimes the metrology and the winds do help us to not keep all that dirt locally in the air. A kind of perfect storm. Now, uh, folks who've been in Metro Denver for a long time will remember the infamous 
brown cloud, which was, as I understand it, often a function of how we treated roads in winter and how much of that got into the atmosphere. When we see uh, something reminiscent of the of the brown cloud, that kind of haze over Metro Denver these days, is it the ozone stuff or is it the particle stuff or are both visible? Ozone is actually not visible. Okay. And that's really the culprit about ozone because you can look out there, you don't smell it, you don't see it. If you are not getting informed, if it is a high ozone day or not, you might not realize what's going on. So it's the particle we see. It's particle, but also other pollutants like nitrogen oxides, you can see them. But they are not, you know, the precursors to ozone pollution. So there is a lot of different pollutants that make up that brown cloud that you see. But the ozone itself, you would not see. What would have to happen to improve... Metro Denver's air quality, and as you say, into the mountains, because what happens here has an effect on our mountain communities. Yeah. So, I mean, if we clean up our air in the front range, we also clean up the air in the mountain communities. So there is, you know, a direct benefit. Um, There is various ways how you can go about that. The one is definitely, well, first of all, we cannot have any handle on what's coming from the outside. It's a contribution. But we have no handle on that. And we produce plenty of dirt and emissions in our own backyard that we don't need to just focus on, you know, a solution that we cannot uh, address. Address, yeah. So we need to clean up our own act, basically. That (laughs) means, of course, you need cleaner industries. You need cleaner cars, cleaner transportation. And sure, you know, one side of the story is that there have to be state regulations and federal regulations that address these issues. But the other side of the story is that we ourselves, we contribute significantly to the problem. We are driving around, we are turning on our air conditioners, in wintertime we are heating, we are going to the store and, you know, buy food that was transported all the way somewhere from South America or we buy our clothes that come from China. And all that, all these transports and us contributing to it, I mean, we put in the air what we breathe. So if we realize that we also need to do our part to it, I think everybody has to. This personal awareness, and of course, on those really bad ozone alert days, I know that the the mandate, the request is to limit your trips and to think about when you gas up But I I guess what you're talking about is a consciousness that is year-round and might be infused into our daily lives. Right. Because at the end of the day, we also, you know, if if, if I buy something that has been transported all the way from Asia, South America, or from somewhere else, I'm responsible also for the pollutant that was put into the entire Northern Hemisphere or Southern Hemisphere Mm -hmm. that contributes to the pollution levels on a global scale, which we call also somewhat our background pollution. So you make you make a contribution no matter where, and eventually we all breathe it in. Gabrielle, thanks for making it fun to talk about air quality. I'm not sure about fun, but engaging to talk about air quality. I appreciate well, your time. Thank you for having me. And as I said, I think it can be fun if we realize it's a problem that needs to be addressed and that we can address. Gabrielle Fista leads the Atmospheric Chemistry Lab at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, and we've been answering your questions about air pollution. 
When Serene Singh graduated from CU Boulder last week, it wasn't the end of her higher education. Singh is the first Rhodes Scholar at CU in 25 years and one of only 32 in the U.S. She's now off to Oxford to study public policy and criminology. Her ultimate goal? To be a U.S. Supreme Court justice. But she has another interest that may be surprising. I spoke with Singh as her final semester at CU was beginning. Hi, Serene. Hello. I just think your name is wonderful, Serene Singh. Why, thank you. You're so welcome. I understand that you played a joke on your family after you found out about the scholarship. This was actually caught on tape. (laughs) Will you set up the scene for us and then we'll hear that? Yes, absolutely. So I think we are staying on the third floor of our hotel and I, I just traveled back and obviously I've been in tears. I just cry for everything. So I cry when I'm happy, when I'm sad. So usually people can't tell. But I, I figured, okay, I'm crying anyways. I will just tell my parents um, that I didn't win the scholarship when I get back home. It was like 1130 at this point. They knew to expect me late because um, the judges take a while to deliberate and then they choose their scholars and then everyone kind of goes home. But you never know how long it's going to take for them to decide. So it was 1130 or so at night and I'm standing in front of my hotel room and I have my phone on the floor so it's recording on the floor (laughs) up against my water bottle and my bag that I brought for the day and I knock on the door quite a few times and no one's picking up and then my sister opens the door she just sees me bawling and she's like serene and I'm like I didn't get it did he um, and I call her Didi out of respect in Indian culture. And she's like, oh, it's okay. It's okay. Don't worry. No worries. Like, we'll have other opportunities. Don't worry. So she kind of just embraces me and she's petting my back. And she's like, why are you standing outside? Get your stuff. Like, why Why are you waiting out here? Let's just go inside. You don't have to be in the public right now. And so she goes and she grabs my phone and my bag and she doesn't realize it's on recording. So she's just picking it up and I just start laughing. And she's like, why are you laughing? <laughs> And then my mom's looking and she's holding a Chinese box tray um, for takeout. And then she flips it around and it says, congratulations, Road Scholar. And I was like, Mom, how'd you know? She's like, I had a feeling. I just had a feeling in my heart that you won it. And so both of them just start cheering and then they bring me into the room. And, and you thought we didn't know? <laughs> and you thought what is a no? Was your sister mad at you? They were so excited. Okay. They just forgot about it so quickly. And I'm such a trickster. They were like, oh, traditional serene. Uh, I mentioned uh, how competitive this scholarship is. 32 students from the U.S. each year. And a surprising part of the screening is a judged cocktail party. Yes. <laughs> Describe it for us. You know, it was honestly one of the scariest parts going into it, but one of the best experiences of my life. What I really liked about it is you actually get to know the judges one-on-one. You get to understand who they are. Um, They get to see your personality a little bit more. Um, How do you walk around? How do you handle yourself in social situations when you spill a drink on yourself? What do you do? Did you Um, spill a drink? I didn't. But actually, it's (laughs) really funny. They had had food, but everyone was really stressed to eat the food because, you know, eating and talking is is stressful. But (laughs) I just kind of walked over to the pineapples and I was like, ah, pineapple's my favorite. And I just started eating them. And one of the judges made a comment. He's like, hey, you're the first one to take food. I'm so proud. Like someone finally was ballsy enough to go and eat. And I was like, I'm hungry. For something that might surprise people now, you're passionate about beauty pageants. <laughs> you compete regularly. That wasn't always the case, I guess. Right. What was your first impression of, of beauty contests? First impression, completely honestly, was uh, disgust. I mean, I, I never thought beauty pageants were something impressive. I didn't think that there was women in them that 
you know, had high goals and aspirations. I kind of just judged whatever I saw on TV, the small snippets, like a lot of us do. And I know my entire family did as well. And I was a complete tomboy, so that did not help with all of the heels and the makeup and the gowns and the hair and all of that didn't make any sense to me. And so this was all in high school. And I remember I was competitively involved in speech and debate. Every single one of my major speeches in high school was making fun of some kind of a pageant contestant. So some answer that they did and some question answer, um, some random fall that happened, something in their reign or their time as a beauty pageant. It was always, I always put in a joke. I just thought it was so funny and they always worked. Those jokes always worked. So it was very normal for me to kind of ridicule um, that entire activity. And then one day, it was really funny. I had just won the state speech and debate championship. This was my sophomore year. Okay. And literally the next day, I'm waking up. It's like 8 a.m. And my mom's like, oh, you got mail. She puts it on the counter and it's an invitation to the Miss Colorado pageant. <laughs> and I just start laughing. And I'm like, what? Who did they, did they see me compete or something and they want to change my mind? Don't they know who I am? I know. And <laughs> I just threw it away in the trash can. And I was like, ah. Absolutely not. And that night I couldn't sleep. And I felt like maybe, you know, you have dealt with stereotypes so much in your life and you've dealt with so many people not knowing and taking a chance to know who you are. So aren't you kind of being a little unfair by judging this community without ever having tried it? And I was like, okay, maybe, maybe I am. Maybe I'm being a little bit closed minded. I went downstairs, middle of the night, pulled out the envelope in the trash can, opened it up, and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to do one pageant. I know I'm going to hate it. It's going to be the worst experience of my life, but I'm going to do it, get it over with, and then at least I'll be a little bit more open-minded about having experienced it. And if you make fun of it, you'll at least know what you're talking exactly. about. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I just felt like I was being really close-minded towards the activity. and How did it um, turn out? You know, joining pageantry... I can truly say has been the best experience of my life. What surprised you about it? Yeah, you know, I think part of it is we call it beauty pageants. But for me, the experience, I mean, I truly believe everyone is beautiful. It's more of a confidence pageant for me. How can I be confident in my unique beauty and really own all my unique flaws and assets to the best of my ability so that it shows? So Um, did did you embrace your tomboyness? Yeah. Or did you like gussy up? I, I think I embraced it. Um, I, actually, here's what here's what it was. I think I've always been a little bit of a tomboy, but I don't think I ever gave my chance to explore dresses and heels and hair and makeup. And, and I never realized that I would like that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Um, but pageantry gave me a unique opening to actually understand and see that. And I've, I've ended up loving it. I think it's so much fun. And I think it's really important as I want to go into politics. I need to know how to be presentable and to look forward and to, you know, be my best self even on camera. And so you've done multiple pageants at yes, this point. Yes, yes. You talked about challenging your stereotypes, your biases. How else do you do that? Another particular example is coming into Boulder um, from a South Asian Sikh American family. I, I mean, also CU Boulder's campus is very very left-leaning and very liberal. Hmm. And that is how I've been raised my whole life. It's kind of been, you know, this is the right side. Everyone else is kind of crazy. And I came into college with that mentality too. And I noticed that in student government, everything was very left-leaning. And I thought, you know, Serene, if you really want to be open-minded and you want to understand people um, who are in Colorado, who are in your communities, who are people that don't get represented at the same levels, at least at CU's campus, um, maybe you should try working for, you know, the other side try working for someone else on the other party. And so I actually interned um, specifically for Mike Huckabee and then Donald Trump um, when they came for the GOP debate. CU Boulder hosted the GOP debate um, when it was time for election season, and I ended up becoming their interns. Completely incredible life-transforming experience. And I realized after that it wasn't enough. I wasn't totally convinced that I knew these people, that I could humanize them, that I could understand where they were coming from. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go intern uh, for Senator Cory Gardner. 
And that's what I did. I went to Washington, D.C. as the one person in that office that was totally on the other side of the spectrum. But I came out of it very, um, I, I felt very full. I, I kind of understood a lot more about myself that I didn't know. This is obviously the Republican senator from Colorado. Mm-hmm. And uh, what would you say it most opened your eyes to? Like, did, did you change your mind about anything? I don't know if I'd say I changed my mind completely on anything, but I think I started to realize that I had opinions that were grounded on, like, nothing. It was just kind of like, this is mm. what I've been taught to believe, and this is what I believe. Um, but trying to understand that I don't know everything and really accepting that was really important to me, that understanding that people have different experiences and backgrounds in, in their lives that hold a lot of a lot more weight than my personal just thoughts. Um, and, and really validating that was important to me. Okay, so at Oxford, you plan to pursue a double master's degree, criminology and criminal justice, (laughs) and evidence-based social intervention and policy evaluation. (laughs) That title alone could be studied. Yes. Um, I wonder what about the criminal mind interests you? It's so many different facets. I think one of the most important ones is violence prevention. I think too often in our society, we are so focused on this is what we need to do right now. But how do you actually challenge violence long term? What works? Um, And there's no better place to study that than the UK, where they have countless thousands and thousands of scientific studies and research proving what works in different communities and how to make sure it's enforced correctly. Do you mean domestic violence? Do you mean acts of terrorism? What are you thinking of? I'm I'm really open. Yeah. I want to learn about all of it. I want to learn how to protect communities. I particularly care about religious communities and women, um, and also young girls. So I'm, we're we're talking internationally. We're talking globally. We're talking at like the very local level. I wonder if that grows a bit out of your own experience as a Sikh. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think growing up as a Sikh American, I've learned many different things. One of the most important things is how can you become a better human towards people who you don't know and people who you don't understand. Because I think my Sikh community constantly looks at the world and says, wait, hold on, we're, re- we're ready to talk about who we are. We're ready to talk about what we believe and why we are just as American as anyone else here, or just as Canadian as anyone else in huh. Canada, or just as British as anyone else here. But we just want that opportunity. And so trying to humanize groups that you don't necessarily agree with, that's what Sikhism has very much taught me. Serene, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Serene Singh talking with me in January. She's the first woman from CU Boulder to be named a Rhodes Scholar and the first student to win from CU in 25 years. She also joins a small number of Sikh Americans who've received the honor. She graduated last week and heads to Oxford in the fall. Okay, let's close today's show with the dream pop soundscape of Oko Tigra. This is not a long-lost English new wave band from the 1980s. It's new music from a Denver-based four-piece who like to say they've picked up where the 80s left off. As you can hear, Oko Tigra draws deep inspiration from the likes of Cocteau Twins, Slow Dive, and The Cure. Oh, 
This is the title track on Oko Tigre's debut full-length record, which came out in April, called Asistoma. If you're scrambling for a dictionary, don't bother. It's a made-up word. But frontman Joshua Novak offers this definition of asistoma. It more or less means to not just enjoy being alone, but to almost be sort of turned on by the idea of being alone. I think I wanted to kind of capture the idea of making something feel like a love song, even though it's not at all. You don't have to be alone. Colorado Matters and CPR News are here for you when you want us. You heard new music from Denver band Oko Tigra and Joshua Novak's Ode to Solitude with the song Asistoma. Oko Tigra, by the way, means Eye of the Tiger in Czech. This is CPR News. Thank you.